0: We are um, beginning this morning a new series, as Mike mentioned earlier, in the book of Galatians, uh, which we're very, very excited about. For the next six weeks, we're going to look into this book uh, in the Bible, one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. We're going to see what God has for us there. We're going to see how it is that he speaks to us and informs us and helps us to understand our faith better and better and better. And so to begin this series... In the book of Galatians, I had this novel idea. Why don't we start with the first verse and go from there? I think that'll work out well. This is Paul writing to, these church, to a church in Galatia. Paul, he says, an apostle sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and our Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And it's a great introduction of a letter that way. Have you ever stopped to think about how we got the Bible and and especially the letters in the New Testament like this one, like how they came to us? I had this notion, I think, when I was younger. Um, I don't think that anybody taught it to me. I think I just came up with it on my own, which generally is a sign that there's going to be a problem. I, I acknowledge that. But I kind of had this picture. I had this like really deep respect for Scripture and for its authority and for its power. And I thought that, gosh, when when a guy like Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he, he like maybe God got a hold of him. He almost like kind of went into a trance, and and like he didn't even know what he was writing. It was just so full of God speaking to him that the words just float off the page. And then when he's done, he had no idea what he had written. He looked at that and said, oh, my gosh, this is a masterpiece. Or, or other times I thought maybe he just, like, woke up that morning, like, feeling it. and said, this is going to be a good day. I got some ideas. Break out the gold pen for this one because this is for Scripture and posterity. Here we go. Come to find out that's not really how it happened. Paul was the guy who traveled kind of the, the Roman Empire, planting churches, introducing people to Jesus, setting them in community with one another, starting a church. And then every now and again, as things do, stuff would happen in the church. Issues would arise. Confusions would arrive. And he would have to deal with them. And so from time to time, he would write to the, a letter to a particular church that was going through some stuff. And he'd say, hey, here's my advice for you. Here are my thoughts about what you're going through. Here are the things that you should be thinking about. And Many of these letters, when they began to be distributed throughout the churches, people realized, wow, there's something special about this letter. There's something great about this particular writing that Paul did, that it captures who God is and it reveals who God is to people. And it gives a clear, very authoritative sense of how we are to live and to honor God. And and these were collected and became the letters that we have in the New Testament. And this particular letter was written to a group of churches in a region known as Galatia. So the context is this. Jesus lived his life and did his ministry and his teaching, right, and his healing. He did all that. He went to the cross. He died. He was raised again from the dead, and he gave his disciples the great commission. Go into all the world teaching and with the good news. Go into all the world. Teach them to observe all I have commanded you. Baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and I'll be with you always. Some of his last words to say, go into all the world with what you've learned from me. And then in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 he says hey the holy spirit's going to come upon you in power he's going to empower you to be my witnesses not just in Jerusalem Jerusalem but into Judea and Samaria and ultimately into the uttermost parts of the earth and then in Acts chapter 2 that actually happened the holy spirit came upon the church at Pentecost and thousands of people in Jerusalem became believers And then they kind of stayed there and forgot about the Great Commission part about going to the uttermost parts of the earth. They forgot about being his witnesses in all those other areas. They just kind of stayed hunkered down in Jerusalem until until Jesus got a hold of this guy named Saul, changed his life so dramatically and so powerfully that he had to change his name to Paul. And Paul understood that his calling, after having come to faith in Christ, was to take the message of who Jesus is and what he'd done... And to take that not just to Jerusalem, and not just to those who were, who were Jews, but to take it outside of Israel, into the entire Roman world, and share the gospel with them. And he began doing that. He began uh, planting churches. On one of those particular journeys, he went with a guy named Barnabas, planted some churches in the region of Galatia. And then, he would, as he would do, he came back from that trip and would write a letter to follow up to the churches that he had planted, and that's what he's doing. He's kind of writing a letter to a church that he has recently established in the area of Galatia. And he kind of did what everyone did when you write a letter. Like, if you were gonna write a letter to Bob, how would you start your letter? Dear Bob, right, exactly. So so Paul kind of follows the standard conventions of his day. He says, this letter's coming from Paul, and here are my credentials. I'm writing it to the churches of Galatia, and uh, and it's all in the honor and glory of God. Here's here's the next thing that if you were receiving a letter in the first century, you would have expected to hear. After that first part of the introduction that we just read, you would expect whoever was writing the letter to say something really nice about you, to commend you in some way. It's why in a lot of Paul's letters, kind of at this stage of the game, he says. I want to commend you for your faith. I've heard about your loving kindness and your support for one another. Keep on persevering in the faith as you have the reputation of doing. This is the spot in the letter where, where Paul and any letter writer of the day would typically say some really nice things to the people that they were writing to. And with that expectation, this is, this is what the recipients of this letter from Paul received in the following verses. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. He's not commending them. He's accusing them. He says this gospel that you're following and turning to, it's not really a gospel at all. But evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion, and they're trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Paul decides to skip the pleasantries, to throw away the conventions, and just makes the accusation, you all are abandoning the faith that you received from me just a little while ago. A little while ago, I was there and I was was giving you this gospel that I proclaim, and you received it. And now I barely got back from that trip, and I find out that you've abandoned it. You've jettisoned it. You've set it aside. And the Galatians are left wondering where's the nice words? Where are the kind words? But Paul's dealing with something that's really important. And it raises the question actually, two of them it raises the question well, what was Paul, Paul's gospel? What, what is the gospel that he presented to the Galatian churches? And then secondarily, what is this other gospel that's not really a gospel? What is it and how is it in contrast with Paul's gospel? So let's start with Paul's gospel. Acts chapter 13 is a chapter in the Bible which talks about Paul's visit to the region of Galatia. It talks about how he preached when he was there. And that, in that particular chapter, um, there's an extended passage where Paul preaches to the people there in Galatia. And he starts with the Old Testament. He starts with what God did in the Old Testament times. And it talks about God's faithfulness to some of the Old Testament heroes. It talks about his formation of the nation of Israel and the promise of a Messiah and all of those sorts of things. And then Paul continues from there and says, and then Jesus came and he fulfilled all of those promises. He fulfilled everything God intended for him to do. He revealed God to humanity. And then Paul talked about how Jesus lived, but then he talked about how he was put to death. And after he talked about how Jesus was put to death, he talked about how God raised him back to life. He gives all that background, and it all culminates in verses 38 and 39, which very clearly express this gospel that, God brought, or that Paul brought with him to the Galatians. And this is it. He says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. When Paul was in Galatia, he did what he did in all of his journeys. When he went into a town, he found the Jewish synagogue and he taught there. He's speaking to people who grew up in the Jewish faith, practicing Judaism and strict adherence to the law. And what Paul says here is that he's presenting a gospel that is superior to what their life in religious Judaism had been up to that point. Under the Judaism of their day, it was their responsibility to live up to all of the rules, all the rituals, all the standards. Their standing with God was acquired by their constant rigid adherence to the everyday detail of the Torah that dominated and governed their religious life, their social life, their political life. It all came down to how well could you follow the rules? How well could you keep up with the system? And Paul says to these people who've been raised in that atmosphere that the gospel I bring is different. The message of Jesus is different than that. Because with Jesus, it's not your performance or your compliance or your family background that matters. It's your faith and it's your belief and it's your trust. Those are the things that matter. And it doesn't just get your sins forgiven. Under Old Testament Judaism, like, there were all the rules and there were all the laws, and then if you violated them, there were, there were means to get back in right standing with God. There was the whole sacrificial system and ways that you could go about that. You could get your sins forgiven, but Paul's talking about something more than that, something that was unavailable to them under that system. He says, in, in Christ, you will be set free from sin. That the gospel that Paul preaches produces something within others, the ability to live in a way that pleases God and not just live a life of slavery to our own desires and habits and and the experience of all the destruction that they bring. No, Paul says Jesus will set you free from all of that and that all it requires of us is faith. All it requires is belief and trust, faith and belief in who Jesus is and what he has done And it's as simple, it's straight ahead, it's no more complicated than that. That's the gospel that Paul brought to the people in the region of Galatia. That's the gospel that they responded to and received when Paul and Barnabas visited them. That's the gospel that Paul left them with. And then Paul and Barnabas left and they went back home to where they came from and they decided to write up write their follow-up letter to those churches. But in the time it took for them to leave Galatia and come home, it appears that some people f- followed in behind Paul and Barnabas. That after Paul and Barnabas had gone, they came in with another message. And what, they, and what they bring is what Paul refers to as a different gospel than the one that he had left with them. And from the tone of Paul's writing... And his strong words to the Galatians. It appears that many of the Galatians had taken to heart this new, this other, this different gospel. They had released their grip on Paul's simple gospel of faith and belief and trust. They'd let go of that. And they'd exchange it for this new gospel, this different gospel. And Paul is really upset by this. What is this different gospel? He had preached faith and belief and trust in Jesus Christ. What was it that came in behind that that he was so upset about? And you might expect it to be things that um, really confronted the claims of Christianity, that maybe Jesus wasn't really God or he wasn't really the Messiah. Maybe you would have expected this new, different gospel to say that, um, well, Jesus lived and he died, but he didn't really raise from the dead. And those are ideas that people came up with over time, and those are ideas that scripture deals with in other places. But, But those are kind of like frontal assault attacks on Christian faith. They essentially say that the basic claims of Christianity are untrue. What was happening in Galatia was not that. It was something much more treacherous, much more insidious, much more subtle. It's sneakier than that. And the roots of it we see in in Acts chapter 15, following on the heels of the account of Paul's visit to Galatia. It says this, that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers that unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, then you cannot be saved. A couple verses down, then some of the believers who belonged to the party, the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. I mean, you can understand the confusion a little bit, right? Because Jesus was Jewish. He was raised in Judaism and all of his disciples were raised in Judaism and then along came Jesus within Judaism and says here's here's the gospel here's the good news and and they believed him and they followed him but like especially on like all the initial followers of Jesus seemed to be Jews they all held that in common so much so that for a long time the rest of the world thought thought of Christianity just as a kind of a subset of Judaism just kind of a a particular small isolated sect Of Judaism. And that's understandable as long as everything stayed in Jerusalem there. But then Paul comes along and he starts going outside of Jerusalem, outside of Israel, out into the Gentile world, out there. And all of a sudden, people are coming to faith who have no association with Judaism. They have a lifestyle that's not informed by the Old Testament law. They live within a structure of life that knows nothing of that, but they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And it raises these questions. Hey, all of us believers, we who have been here for a while, we're all used to following the Old Testament law. And now there are these others coming to faith who aren't. What are we going to do with them? And how do those people accepting Christ out here, how do they fit in with us in here? The Judaizers, the ones who followed in behind Paul, came up with this conclusion that, Jesus is okay. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. There's nothing wrong with faith in Jesus. But they also said that all by himself, he's not enough. That you need to supplement your faith in Jesus with some rule following of your own. They said, look, it's fine that you believe in Jesus. It's fine that you place your faith in Jesus. It's fine that you follow Jesus and live according to what he said. But that by itself is not enough. You have to step out of just following him and step into religious Judaism and its observance in order to be saved. Can you imagine if we send a, if we send a team off to another country in the world, um, say Indonesia, and we sent a team there out to go do some evangelism and share the gospel. And the people there started coming to faith a lot. And they said, we want to follow this Jesus you're telling about us. We want to accept this gospel that you're sharing with us. Tell us what we need to do. And we said, well, you need to believe in Jesus and you need to become an American citizen. And I mean, it's fine, but if you just believe in Jesus, but you don't become a citizen, you're not really a Christian. Do you see the problem there? Do you see the, the difficulty Do you see this inherent conflict when it's faith in Jesus plus something else? That's what Paul is speaking towards. Paul is having none of it. He realizes that if you add anything to the gospel, that if your faith is in any way a kind of Jesus plus anything kind of faith, then the anything you add becomes just as important as Jesus. And Paul wanted none of that. In fact, he said this, as we have already said, So I now say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be under God's curse. Paul suggests that anyone who tries to impose a Jesus plus anything kind of faith can go to hell. And that's not me just like finding an excuse to swear in a public place. (laughs) That's the intent of Paul's words. Let them be a curse. It's that Serious that a move away from Jesus only to Jesus plus anything is a move towards hell itself. Doing so undermines the power of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It suggests that by itself, Jesus' sacrifice was inadequate. It didn't get the job done all by itself. That as good, of, as, good as Jesus' death and resurrection might have been, it's incomplete to really connect us to right relationship with God. And that's the danger of that kind of gospel. The gospel plus anything that the Judaizers were adding for new Gentile believers was a requirement to convert not just to Jesus, but also to Judaism as expressed in the keeping of the hundreds of the religious and social and civil laws and commandments. That's what meant is meant by the law. And so there's this Jesus, the gospel, and the law. And the Judaizers are saying, you got to have both. In his commentary on the book of Galatians, uh, Martin Luther wrote this. Either Christ must live and the law perish, or the law remains and Christ must perish. Christ and the law cannot dwell side by side in the conscience. It is either grace or law, and to muddle the two is to eliminate the gospel of Christ entirely. He understood that what Paul said is the gospel is very simple. We come bringing nothing but our faith and our belief and trust. And that's what aligns us with God. And when we add anything to that as the doorway into right relationship with God, we are stepping well outside of the gospel of Christ. Now, let's be honest. You and I today aren't going to hear what the Galatians heard. Very, you're probably not going to hear someone say, if you really want to follow Jesus, follow Jesus, you have to convert to Judaism. That one, historically, that's just a long time ago, right? But if you listen carefully to what's out there and listen carefully to the thinking behind some of the things that are said, you'll hear a different version of Jesus plus anything. And I think it would make Paul as mad today as he was back then. If you hear people say something like, like, well, if you're a Christian, you will obviously vote blue or red either way, right? Right? Because clearly a Christian must do that. Or if someone says, you cannot be a Christian and go watch that movie or see this TV show or enjoy that kind of entertainment. Anyone who, if you've ever heard someone tell you, if you really, like, if you're not daily reading your Bible enough, and if you're not spending enough time in prayer, you're probably not really a Christian. These other things are not bad in in and of themselves, but when you attach them to just following Jesus by faith as the way you enter into a relationship with God, it's a disaster. Christians don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't uh, play cards. They don't gamble. uh, There's a whole long list of things that people tend to associate with what Christians don't do. You don't become a Christian by following Jesus and not doing things. Become a Christian by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Christ. Have you ever had the sense that the way that you keep God happy is by attending church regularly, doing daily devotions, being in a life group, going through rooted, serving at the church, serving in the community, giving money regularly, mastering your addictions, being a role model, uh, being a model employee, leading people to Jesus, making your marriage a priority, making your family a priority, making your church a priority, and making everything in the world a priority. And if you do all that, God will be happy with you and you'll be a good Christian. I don't know if you'll be a good Christian. You'll be an exhausted Christian. <laughs> you'll be worn out. That's for sure. And it is a burdensome thing to labor under the sense that unless I do all of that all the time perfectly well, I don't really know God. Paul says that's, that's, that's not just a deficient version of the gospel. It's an entirely other version gospel, which is no good news at all. And the church had to deal with this when this happened. It had to be taken care of. And we can learn from the way that the church dealt with this. I first want to say this, we need to learn that effective evangelism produces some chaos and some crisis. Like when Paul went out into the Roman world and people got converted, it created this chaotic crisis situation that all of a sudden there are people coming in to join us who are very different than us, lead very different lives than us, come from a completely different social, cultural, and political background than us, and it doesn't all fit together real easily. It created a crisis that they had to deal with. If we're good at the job of evangelism, if we're good at the job of sharing our faith, it should create a similar kind of crisis and a similar kind of chaos. Like in my perfect world, our life groups don't just look like a whole bunch of like super developed, really mature Christians. In my perfect world, your life group would look like some nicely developed, wonderfully mature Christians and a, and a bunch of really not mature Christians who are finding their way. And that you invited in. And maybe some people who don't even know Jesus yet, but you've invited them to come partake in what God is doing here, and they're finding their way. And it's not going to be a homogenous, neat, tidy group. It's going to be a group where, man, their life looks really different than my life. They're coming from a background that might be really different from our background. But it's okay, because that's what effective evangelism does. And at whatever point your life group or our church lobby or this meeting room or your circle of friends looks a little too homogenous... A little too much just like you, that's not just something to be comfortable about. It's something to be concerned about. Because it might mean that maybe there's not enough reaching out going on. Maybe there's not enough welcoming in that's taking place. Good evangelism produces the kind of chaos that they experienced there at the Galatian church. You know, back in the day when I was, um, and you'll say that was a long time ago, back when I was a younger minister, way back when, I, I was at a fairly homogenous church that wasn't bringing in lots of folks who were living a life that was a whole lot different. And I would get questions from time to time about, hey, I'm, uh, Pastor, I've been married for a while. It's not working out so well. Does the Bible allow me to get a divorce and I'd have to give them the bad news? No, it doesn't. I'd give mean, them the good news. God can heal your marriage. I'd give them that too, but you know, or, or they might say, um, I, you know, I I was divorced in the past, and and now I'd like to get married again. Does the Bible allow allow that? That was kind of a, that was the extent of the kinds of questions around that I would get. Now it's totally different. My experience now is a little more like, well, I got married right out of high school, and we had a child pretty quickly after that, but that didn't work out. Um, there were some legal issues, and we had to separate, and so that's over there. But a few years later, I got married again because I thought that was going to work. No legal issue time, ty- legal issues that time, but it also didn't work out, and no kids on that one. But now I'm in this relationship, and Pastor, I just want you to know I was not going to make the same mistake I've made twice before. So I'm living with my girlfriend now instead because I don't want to make the marriage mistake. But don't. But it's not bad. It's a good thing because like her brother. Um, allowed me to join him in his business so we've got a cannabis shop over here. And I've been coming to your church and I love it, so how am I going to grow spiritually? I'm just skimming through the Bible going, where is that verse? Where is that verse? Where is that verse? And you know, in some places, people would be scandalized by the fact that there are things like that and situations like that and and they're they're here and they're in front of us and how can that be happening in a church? And I just want to say, Man, I I am so grateful that there are circumstances like that in our church. I'm so grateful that people whose lifestyles don't look particularly churchy are being reached out to, are encountering God's love, are being attracted to what God is doing in people's lives and are asking questions right where they are about, wow, how, how do I move forward in this? That's a wonderful thing. That's not something to be scandalized by. It's something to celebrate together. Effective evangelism produces chaos and it produces crisis. Here's the second thing we need to learn that chaos and crisis, when it arrives, needs to be handled, handled biblically. The church in Jerusalem, when this issue arose, did a great thing. They convened a council of their leaders and went to look into this issue. And after some conversations and some testimony and some prayer, this is how the, the book of Acts records the conclusion of that council. It is my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual, sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and it's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. There was chaos. There were people coming to Christ who had no idea how the Old Testament taught them to live. But they were becoming part of the body of Christ together, and we were expected to live together. So what are we going to do? And they took, you know, the Judaizers are saying, well, here's how you do it. You don't let them in unless they become Jews and follow all of the laws. And they winnow it all the way down to just four things. And and you got to ask, right, why those four? Like, what's the deal with those four? I'll tell you exactly what the deal for those four is. In Leviticus 17 and 18, a part of the Old Testament law, it's a passage that says, hey, when you as an Israelite have a non-Israelite living in your home, either long term or temporarily, maybe someone who's sojourning and coming through, they're not going to know all the rules that you live with. They're not going to be familiar with your way of life. So when there is a, a non-Israelite living in your home, here are the four things that you're going to need to require them to live by as they live with you in your home. And if they won't do these things, then they're really not supposed to be there. It's the same four things that the council came up with. And they're presented in exactly the same order. What did the council do when they had this chaos and crisis that was, that was the result of good evangelism? They went to the scripture and said, how does scripture direct us to respond? They didn't come up with new rules. They didn't choose to eliminate other rules. They went right there and said, hey, scripture tells us what we ought to require of Gentiles who are coming to be a part of our fellowship together. Let's stick with what Scripture says. Let's not go with what seems like a good idea to me. Let's not go with what seems most expedient. Let's look into the Scriptures, and when the crisis and the chaos strikes, let's dig deep into Scripture, because it is what will contru- which will direct us and lead us towards God's truth. And that's incumbent upon us as well. The Jerusalem Council simply enacted what the Old Testament already said. The third thing that I think that we need to learn from the the way the church handled this is this. That change does not produce belonging. Belonging produces change. The Judaizers came in behind Paul and said, hey, if they're willing to change, then they can belong. And we'll accept them on that basis. And Paul said, and the Jerusalem council agreed, no, no, no they have faith in Jesus Christ, if people place their faith in Christ, if they just have simple trust in him, then by definition, they belong. And it is the belonging, the living life together, the being at the synagogue every week when the word of God is taught. The belonging over time will produce the change that we find so important, right? It's hard. I grew up in a very... Christian and churchy kind of home. I was raised like the behavior and living right and following the rules was really important. It's terrifying to me to go, just believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus and walk with other Christians, eventually the behaviors will take care of themselves. You know what that reveals in me? A hypocrisy that's painful to look at. It reveals that just somehow in my heart of hearts, maybe I align more with the Judaizers than I do with the gospel that Paul presented. It's a part of me that I have, to, I have to choose to put to death, that I have to choose that when somebody who maybe has a background or a lifestyle or something that's different than mine comes to faith in Jesus Christ and believe, and begins the process of following him, that I've got to trust not me or my rules or my systems or my church or anything else, to trust none of those things, but just entrust that person to Jesus Christ to go as that person walks along with Jesus and lives life in the community of other believers, that the Spirit of God growing within them will produce some of these changes. I've actually got to learn to trust Jesus more than I trust the rules. And if you grew up following rules, you know what I mean when I say it's hard to let go of. But until we let go of that, we're following a different gospel. We've rejected, along with the Galatians, the gospel that Paul presented, and we've picked up one of our own. Don't get me wrong. Later on in this book, not to get, jump too far ahead, but Paul's going to give a phenomenal description later in this book about what your life looks like if you follow Jesus for a while and some of the changes that eventually he will work in you. He, he expects that to happen. But that's at the end of the letter. Right here at the beginning of the letter, where it's like, how do I come to know God? How do I become a Christian and a follower of Jesus? How do I begin that process that eventually at some point ends up over there? It's not my behavior. It's not my perfection. It's not my rule following. It's not anything I can produce. It's just a simple expression of faith that says, I believe. I place my faith in Christ. And we need to add nothing to that. We must add Nothing to that, or else we pervert the very gospel we claim to proclaim. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and they want to pray for us here. Because some of us in this room have been laboring under the burden of trying to feel like we belong by relying on how we behave. And you can perform for a while, but eventually we all get to the point where the performance is not enough and the behavior is not good enough. And if we're relying on our behavior rather than our belief, it just feels like we're living on the knife edge of God's displeasure and the whole house of cards is gonna come crumbling down at any moment. And I wanna set us free from that illusion this morning. Heavenly Father, would you Break, whatever bonds exist in each one of us that somehow link our faith in Jesus Christ to and plus anything else. God, together, we reject the notion that any of our behaviors, disciplines, or well-meaning good activities is what places us in right relationship with you. God, this morning, we choose to believe what Paul wrote so clearly to his beloved church the forgiveness of sin and freedom from its power is available simply in Jesus Christ and we cling to that as the foundation of our faith in you and ask that you would re-instill with us as needed a confidence of your love of your acceptance of the fact that you do live within us and are guiding us in our life. God, would you refresh us from the exhaustion of trying to be perfect? And would you give us that fresh, new energy that comes with understanding that we live a life based on grace, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Scott. Great word. Well, uh, let's stand up together. Don't forget to sign up for our Serve Day leaders. We'll see you here tonight, all of our volunteer servant leaders. And uh, hey, if you are new or newer to the church, love to meet you right over here for a first connect, just for a few moments. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.